Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Hallelujah, Christ is risen! Good morning, Epiphany. It's a pleasure and a joy to be with you this Sunday morning, May the 3rd, the third Sunday after Easter. I wanted to share a big old thank you to everyone who jumped online with our check-in groups this week. We had about a third of the church jump in and join our Thursday and Tuesday uh, video calls, and another third from the church said they'd be joining this week. So stay tuned for more info on this week's check-in calls, and which, again, they're going to come every Tuesday and Thursday from here and for a while. We're continuing our sermon series this week, The Gospel According to Genesis. As always, stay tuned for a few announcements after our time together. The Lord is risen indeed, my friends. Alleluia, alleluia. Good morning. Uh, this is Kip, and here is our confession of sin for today. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. This is Richard Flickinger. Our psalm for today is Psalm 23, taken today from the popular King James translation. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hi, I'm Regina Butler, and I'll be reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 5 through 25. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for the food. 
In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds to the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, aromatic resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds to the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all of the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now my bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, Pope Francis uh, gets in a lot of trouble these days. And you couldn't give me his job any day of the week. No thank you, no poping around for me. And that's not just because of the, the theology, uh, the politics alone for him. I mean, my gosh. But uh, Pope Francis gets in trouble a lot. And my favorite example of Pope Francis getting in trouble took place in 2014. And in an interview with an Italian newspaper, uh, Pope Francis had very little good to say about the condition of the spirit of Europe, the spiritual life of the European continent. He thought it was too wealthy. He thought it was too entitled. Uh, the birth rate was, and still is, declining. And Pope Francis brought up these trends and said they're creating an anti-child bias, that investment in schools is behind, and investment in social programs to assist families were behind. But here's where he really got in trouble. He shared his dismay that after food and clothing and medicine, the next two expenditures of the average European were cosmetics and pet supplies. And the reporter goads the Pope a little bit. He says, you mean animals count more than children? And the Pope responded with this. It's another phenomenon of cultural degradation. And this because the emotional relationship with animals is easier. It can largely be programmed. An animal isn't free, whereas to have a child is something complex. And of course, the tabloids and the internets and the blogs had a field day. Uh, Pope Francis hates pets. <laughs> Pope Francis is anti-animal. But you see in our reading today from Genesis 2, the Pope may actually have a point. 
uh, in a sort of roundabout and imperfect way. And as we look at Genesis chapter 2 and the world that God created for man and woman to inhabit, I think that we as Christians will find that like Pope Francis, we are likely to get in some trouble ourselves. Uh, This morning in our second sermon in our series titled The Gospel According to Genesis, um, this is our second sermon in the series. Last week we covered the very beginning of it all. And to summarize where we've been so far, the God of Genesis, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Christians, creates the world from nothing but the use of his voice. God creates a universe that is very good and creates humanity to exist in and enjoy that very good universe. And sometimes you can tell a lot about the character and nature of a person by looking at the things they create. You can tell that a child loves uh, her parents when she brings home the crayon drawing for the family fridge of the whole family from school. And you can tell something about Michelangelo when you see his sculpture, the Pieta, right? The famous uh, marble sculpture depicting Mary holding a lifeless Jesus in her arms. And you can tell a lot about Michelangelo's faith and his artistic ability by looking at that sculpture. And I think you can tell a lot about God by the fact that he created a very good universe. Perhaps we can say that God is very good, especially in contrast and comparison to the other creation stories, both ancient and modern, that people ascribe to. And so, in the book of Genesis, God creates the universe. And, and we zoom in, in Genesis chapter 2, to revisit God's making of the universe on the sixth day of creation, the creation of humankind. That's where we are. God creates on the sixth day the Garden of Eden. He creates man to tend and enjoy the garden. Um, he, there's a talk of four headwaters of four major rivers that are sourced from the garden. Um, God talks about uh, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a famous tree that's been planted in the garden. And I think we're going to see the same nature of God, the goodness of his creation, play out in both this sort of cosmic seven days we already looked at, but now we're going to see it in the very hyper-specific, simple interactions that God has with Adam and Eve. Uh, We're going to see that God is a very good God in the midst of this. So let's dive in. Here's a portion of our Genesis 2 reading. Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Our reading is really a search for companionship. God invites Adam to find a suitable companion among all the other created creatures. And he doesn't find one among the, the lions and the tigers and the bears and the starfish and the pheasants and the ferrets. None of these are suitable for Adam to have true companionship or help. And so the Lord God puts Adam under the knife, as it were, and takes out one of his ribs and uses that rib and fashions from that rib a partner, woman. And you know it's a big deal uh, when Adam finally meets this woman. Interestingly enough, she, again, she's the first and only creature not to explicitly be made out of ground and dirt, right? She is made from bone. She is unique. And Adam is so taken aback by this creature, a creature designed to end his loneliness, that he breaks out into poetry. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so men have ever since been breaking out into love poetry when they see women. It goes all the way back to the beginning of time. And it is not good, the text says, that man should be alone. And so those are God's words. God gives Adam the helper that the other animals could not be. And throughout the history of the church, there's this little poem, this little insight that goes all the way back through church history. It may be actually suited, sourced in Jewish inspiration of the material. And it's often quoted in reference to Genesis 2. And, and, and here's how one theologian, theologian puts this together. Throughout the history of the church, there's this little poem. And here's how one theologian put it. He said, that woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Something that the, the, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther points out is that the Hebrew word for man is ish, and the Hebrew word for women is ishah. And if you're a language person, you'll, you'll figure out pretty quickly here that the word for women in Hebrew is the word for man with the feminine suffix tucked onto the back. And so Luther takes this to mean, actually, that there is total parity between the man and the woman in all things other than biology, other than you know physical sex. He says men and women are the same. There, there is... Uh, no ontological difference in the eyes of God or in the world. Um, but, but men and women are fundamentally the same. And the text ends with a remarkable word about the intimacy that Adam and Eve, um, uh, his new wife, experienced together. They were both naked and unashamed. And there's so much to be said here about how the foundations of the earth and, and, and the world, at the very beginning of it all, God intended for there to be zero shame. There was no shame in paradise. It was, it was functionally a nudist colony for Pete's sake. Adam and Eve were in such close companionship, their bodies required zero covering. It's so beautiful and so remarkable that we almost don't know what it means in 2020 to be naked and unashamed. And so many things in, in this reading are worth our consideration, right? We have the naming of the animals. Um, we have the, the first wedding. We have the creation of woman. And we have all of this paired together uh, in a way that, that ends by saying they are together and they are unashamed and they are not alone. 
And so the question I asked this morning is this, where is the gospel? Where does the first wedding and the name of the animals, what does all this have to do with God's intent to save the world? Well, we know from our reading that the gospel is not pet ownership, (laughs) or maybe I should rephrase it to say that pet ownership is a poor analogy to the gospel. And again, Pope Francis, despite his kind of curmudgeonly tone, curmudgeonly tone, was right on that mark. And, and and look, I hate to admit it, right? But I lost the fight a couple of months back. And now Ginger, the golden retriever puppy, sleeps in the family bed with Beth and I. And I hate it. I hate that I lost that fight. But my dog is too smart because when baby Tom, it's 3 a.m. And, and, and Ginger realizes that if she starts barking and making noise... And that baby Tom will cry and wake us all up and that she'll continue to bark unless we let her out of the crate. Sometimes the dog is just smarter than you, especially at three o'clock in the morning. And so Ginger won that fight, which makes me someone who lets the dog sleep in the bed. And I'm here to tell you that I am not against pets. I love my dog and I can't imagine a living a life without Ginger right now. I have a dog that I spoil and care about too. But the love of our pets is not the same as the Christian gospel. Um, As the old joke goes, you can lock your dog and you can lock your spouse together in the trunk of your car. And you can come back an hour later and open the car's trunk up and only one of them will be happy to see you when you let them out. Um, The text in Genesis tells us that animals are not suitable companions in the same way that spouses are. And so despite the fact that we are given affection and purpose from our pets, they are not God's good news for us. We also know from the reading that the gospel is not the same thing as marriage. Let me say more about this, right? Marriage is great. It is built into the fabric of the created universe. It is part of the cosmic very good that the world created, that God created for the world. When God created the world and said it was very good, marriage is one of those things. And the witness of Genesis here is that heterosexual monogamy is the original intent of how the world is supposed to be. And new family units are formed when a man and a woman come together in holy matrimony for the purpose of having kids and having romantic intimacy and fulfilling a divine mandate about how the universe was constructed. Uh, We are not just sort of fulfilling a social contract or doing what is socially expected of us when we give each other to each other in marriage. We are fulfilling something that is at the core of how the universe was intended to be. And I keep alluding to this great cataclysm that happens to God's very good creation that messes it up. And we're going to discuss that great cataclysm next week. But sadly, the the great cataclysm includes marriage. And in the current culture war that's been fought or being fought, Christians have frequently pointed out to the fact that marriage is good and it's part of God's creation. And it is. It is part of God's creation. And it is blissful and intimate and, and easy and good when Adam and Eve are doing it. But on this side of the great devastation, the gospel, the good news that God gives us, shouldn't be confused um, with marriage, right? It shouldn't be confused with heterosexual monogamy. Is marriage good? Yes. Marriage was originally intended to be between um, man and woman. Um, That is all true. 
Do we all long for circumstances where we can be unashamed of our actions and our spirit and our bodies? Absolutely. But your experience and mine is that marriage creates, again, on this side of the Jordan, it creates as many problems as it solves. And so when someone comes to us looking for good news, when someone is looking, coming to us and, and wanting to hear about God's love for sinners, we don't necessarily answer, well, look at my marriage. Have you considered marriage? Have you, have you put forward the idea that maybe the answer to your problems is marriage? If we do that, how do we reconcile the fact that in the New Testament, Jesus was single for his whole life? Or how do we reconcile the fact that the Apostle Paul says that celibacy is actually a better state? If you can be celibate, if you can sort of control your need for, for uh, romantic intimacy and be celibate, Paul says, great, that's even better because you can devote more of your life to the ministry of the gospel. How are we to understand that Jesus teaches us that in the great restoration of all things to come, marriage will be made obsolete. So while marriage is good, and it is very good and part of creation, it is not the good news of the Christian gospel. Finally, you will not find any good news in your biology or your or your sex, right? Um, the most popular work of nonfiction for the 1990s was, any, any guesses? Any guesses out there? The, the most popular work of nonfiction from the 1990s was the oft-quoted tone, Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And the book was a guide to navigating the difference between, as Luther mentioned, the, the Ish and the Isha, the man and the woman. I mean, we're talking about 15 million copies of a book sold. Uh, so, you know, that's a lot. We're talking 121 weeks on the bestseller list, you know. So this was a cultural phenomenon. And our conversations about men and women have, have continued on since then. And um, our understanding of sex and gender, uh, they're not the same categories that we talk about now as they were about two or three years ago even. But I can say with clarity that you will not find God's good news in your biological sex. I can say with certainty that you will not find good news in your biological sex. You will not find good news from God in your maleness or your femaleness. And if you take some sort of comfort in the fact that you're this sort of macho man who can do your own home renovation while holding down a high power job, while you get to the gym three days a week and still being able at the same time to be an active and loving husband and father, great. Good for you. I resent you, but good for you. But 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 let's not put any good news in that stock because, you know, one pandemic later and all of a sudden your job is unstable, the gym is closed, your home renovation is on pause. And you're discovering that you're maybe not such a good father and husband like you thought you were when you're seven Sundays deep into a quarantine. And the same is true for women too. If you've put your identity and good news into the sort of apron wearing, bread baking, upward mobility job situation while shuttling the kids from soccer practice and volunteering at the PTA, if that's you, um, this pandemic has put your upwardly mobile um, glass ceiling breaking job in jeopardy. And it's forced you to work at home with kids who do not have the same sort of respect for your work that you do. And then, of course, you don't have time to even wash your apron. And there's no yeast at the Giant Eagle for you to use to bake any bread. Whatever your conception of man and woman is, whether it's the stereotypes I just shared or whether it's something different, our reading says, don't bother putting stock in it. In Genesis 1, God says that he created humankind in the image of God, man and woman together, 
Um, he created them. And, and what he's saying, what the, the author of Genesis is saying, what God wants us to see in Genesis is that by ourselves, we will be lonely. And that part of the image of God comes forward when we are together with others in community. And so if good news only applies to your biological sex, then it's not good news for everyone, which means it's not good news, really, at the end of the day. So let's ask this question. Where is the gospel in our reading? If it's not our pets, if it's not our marriages, if it's not our biological sex, where we might we find good news? And the answer in our reading has to do with ribs. The answer has to do in our reading with ribs. Did you ever think about why God needed to put Adam under general anesthesia to take out his rib and create women out of his rib? Here's a reminder. Here's the reading. This is the part I'm, I'm referring to in Genesis 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And so you have this moment where Adam has lost consciousness and an incision was made in his side and the result was his wife made from his wound. I wonder if you can recall any other instances in scripture of a person who went unconscious, was wounded in the side, and returned to find a bride waiting for him. This is the story of the Christian gospel, isn't it? Adam was unconscious in a deep sleep. Jesus Christ was unconscious when he was executed and laid in a tomb for three days. And God permits each man to have his side cut open, one to have the rib removed, the other to have blood and water removed. And Adam's incision, of course, is healed and he is awakened. And Christ's incision remains a scar of glory, but he is resurrected. He is no longer unconscious. He has been resuscitated and raised from the dead. And when the two awake, both Adam and Christ are given a bride. Adam is given his beloved Eve, and Christ is given his beloved church. God gave us marriage from the foundation of the universe, but the gift wasn't just in marriage in and of itself. The gift of marriage in Genesis 2 is that it points us to the great cosmic marriage at the heart of the Christian gospel. The original marriage prefigures a time when Jesus Christ and his church will be as intimate and without shame as Adam and Eve in the garden. And that's what St. Paul says in Ephesians, and that's what John says in Revelation, and that is the great hope of the New Testament. That's why in the age to come, we will neither give nor be given in marriage. We already have a spouse. His name is Jesus Christ. And that's why the New Testament can say, you know what? God bless celibacy. Embrace celibacy. Because anything you have between now and Jesus' return it's just sort of an appetizer of the true intimacy, the true intimacy uh, that is to come. There's also something, and I'm going to close with this, friends, that this gospel of Genesis 2 also has something to say about shame. A quick reminder here about shame, right? Shame, there's a, there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is I have done something wrong, and shame is I am bad and unworthy. And so looking at this passage, we see that Adam and Eve have complete intimacy with each other. They are naked and they are unashamed. They have nothing to hide. 
They're like the sleight of hand musician. Um, they're they're like the sleight of hand magician, right? Nothing under my sleeve. Well, they were naked. They had nothing under their sleeves. They weren't even wearing sleeves. And friends, it's entirely possible that one of the ways we take this text to our own danger, to our own discredit, it's entirely possible that we put our marriages on a pedestal and treat our marriages as if they are like Adam and Eve's, completely intimate, unashamed, nothing to hide. And we can do the same mistake if we are single as well. We sometimes think that marriage will be that opportunity for complete and total intimacy. We can finally be naked around someone else and we can be completely unashamed. And whether we're single or married or widowed or cohabitating or in a long-term relationship or engaged, what we discover is that if Adam and Eve were our peers in a fallen world, they might be naked, but they may be uh, very strategically figuring out how to place the fig leaves and tree branches in the way so that they wouldn't have to be in total intimacy. Because this side of the Jordan, this side of the fall, this side of the great cataclysm to come, we are all ashamed, and we all have things to be ashamed over. But when you see that Adam and Eve are an Old Testament foreshadow of Christ and his church, then you realize that the key to total and unashamed intimacy is not between two humans. It's not between a man and a woman. It's not between husbands and wives. It's not between you and your pet. It's not between you and a fully self-realized understanding of your masculinity or your femininity. A relationship without shame, a relationship with total honesty, a relationship with nothing to hide is only possible between you and your husband, Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of the church. There, friends, and only there, will you find complete forgiveness of everything you've done wrong. There, and only there, will you find patient understanding. There and only there will you find a voice of, non, of non-judgment. There and only there will you find an end to your shame. You may experience those things sometimes here on earth, in your earthly relationships, but they are only a shadow of the beautiful intimacy, the gift that is to come. In Jesus' name, Amen. Good morning, everyone. This is Emily Barth. Would you join me in saying the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now, as our Savior Christ taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, everyone. This is Sandy Crumrine. Would you pray with me, please? O God, our King, 
by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins, banish our fears, make us bold to praise you and to do your will, and steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on the last great day, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We also remember those on Epiphany's prayer list, the Walker family, Jill Ann Palmer, Ligonier Camp and Conference, Pine Springs Camp, and those among us who have asked for anonymous prayer. We remember also the prayer requests shared at our check-in groups this week. Almighty God, we entrust all who are dear to us, especially those on our church prayer list, to your never-failing care and love for this life and the life to come, knowing that you are doing for them better things than we can desire or pray for. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Here is a prayer for times of great distress. Increase, O God, the spirit of neighborliness among us, that in peril we may uphold one another, in suffering tend one another, and in homelessness, loneliness, or exile befriend one another. Grant us brave and enduring hearts that we may strengthen one another until the disciplines and testing of these days are ended and you again give peace in our time through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Here is a prayer for mission. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. For the honor of your name, amen. Almighty God, you have given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplications to you. And you have promised through your well-beloved Son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, you will grant their requests. Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions as may be best for us, granting us in this world knowledge of your truth and in the age to come, life everlasting. Amen. And now a few announcements before we end our time together this morning. This week our check-in groups will meet again Tuesday at 3 and Thursday at 7. We're going to keep the same pattern. We're going to share one highlight, one low light, and one prayer request. And my hope is that every member of Epiphany who has a solid internet connection will be able to make a call or video chat and join a check-in group over the next few weeks. Even if you're doing great and you don't need to check in, Maybe you're having a blast during the pandemic. Maybe you're just having such a good time and we all just hate you. That's not true, in fact, because joining a, a check-in group is part of what the pastoral theologians call the ministry of presence. By simply checking in with others uh, at the church, what you're doing is you're providing members of the church who may be isolated and really struggling with this season a sense of connection and an opportunity to reconnect with people they genuinely care about. As it stands, members of Epiphany don't need grocery runs or toilet paper, but 
Gosh, we're all feeling lonesome. And we could use a friendly face right now that's not wearing a mask. So join in on our check-in groups this Tuesday at 3 and this Thursday at 7. Next up, I'm excited to announce the return of Epiphany's favorite outreach event. That's right, get the party horns ready. It's almost time for a quarantine edition of Pizza Night. Here's what I mean by, by almost time. First, it turns out that our local restaurants, in order to keep costs manageable now that everyone's at home quarantined, they've all cut back on their inventory. So if we all as a church show up and get pizza at the exact same time, they may not be ready to handle all of our orders. So for our quarantine edition of our pizza night gathering, we're going to shift things up a bit. I'm going to send out an easy to use internet form and then you'll fill it out. You'll give your name, your pizza order, your pickup time, and I'll forward our collective order to the pizza night restaurant and then your order's in and you can sw simply swing by, pay for your pizza, grab your pizza and then return home. Second, and you may have heard me say this a second ago, I think after some discussion about the financial uh, wherewithal of the church, we're going to make a temporary adjustment to our pizza night checks. In the past, Epiphany picks up the tab and you buy the drinks. That's how we've done it at the church for the longest time. And during this time of economic uncertainty, it seems prudent to reduce the spending of the church just a bit. And also, we're going to keep some of these mission funds we would normally spend on pizza night held back for more pressing financial needs. Giving away free pizza is great. Helping someone out by assisting with their utility payments or buying them a load of groceries, that's even better. So when you order your pizza, for now, if you'd like to, pick up the tab. If you wouldn't like to, talk to me. We can work something out. But the idea is that everyone orders their own pizza, everyone pays for their own pizza, and then everyone heads home. And then once you get home, you'll boot up your PC, you'll jump in on Zoom, we'll all get together for a Zoom time of fellowship, and we'll all reconnect. Maybe we'll do some time of Bible teaching and sharing. Maybe we'll do a church-wide show and tell. Maybe we'll do a talent show. I don't know. We'll do something. We need any excuse to come together and make each other smile. And if we're going to use Pizza Night to do anything, that's certainly one of the things we can do. So here is the plan. Stay tuned this week for our first Pizza Night menu from Miriam's Table. We'll have a date, we'll have pricing, and we'll have more info as it comes together. One last note before we end our time together. This Saturday, May the 9th, I, Pastor Brian, have the privilege of doing something that I never thought in my entire life I would do. Something so out of the ordinary, they don't talk about it on seminary, they don't talk about it in the, 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 the church textbooks of how to be a pastor. Friends, this weekend, I'm excited to announce that I am officiating a wedding during the pandemic. That's right, I am officiating a wedding. And so I'm gonna ask you to please keep Jason Wilson and Hannah Keeler in your prayers as we work through the final details of a church service that will end the social distance between a man and a woman. Um, I would ask you to pray for both of them, pray for me as well, that we could have a safe and healthy and happy uh, and disease virus-free service and pray for them as well, um, that as they shift gears and move into a married life during a time of quarantine, that they would be blessed uh, by God uh, during this very alone bit of alone time. That's it for announcements this week, Epiphany. God bless you all. Know that you remain in my prayers. And in the meantime, hear this blessing. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you now and remain with you always. Amen. If I gave my life to you, girl, would you give your life to me? Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. How about an audio Easter egg for people who decide to listen all the way to the end? The question is, do I actually make the sign of the cross when I pronounce a blessing over the microphone before and while I am reading it? The answer is yes. Yes, I do. This is either the most blessed microphone in the history of microphones, or you're getting the whole blessing. Either way, yes, I do make the sign of the cross over the microphone every Sunday.